Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me again this week on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I want to start off this week again by thanking all of you for making Next on the Tee the number one golf podcast and the number one golf indie podcast on Good Pods. We did that for the month of September. As I always say, Next on the Tee Nation is awesome. The show continues to grow by leaps and bounds, and I remain so grateful to all of you for your fantastic support. Okay, on to tonight's show, and I'm excited. I've got four wonderful guests again for you this week. First up is going to be 1989 Open Champion and four-time U.S. Ryder Cup team member Mark Kalkovecchia. We're going to learn what it was like to be on those four Ryder Cup teams, the pressure during the matches, and the exhilaration of winning the Cup. Mark and his wife, Brenda, are both wonderful people, two of my all-time favorites, so really looking forward to hearing Mark's stories. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from one of the all-time great college and amateur players and the winner of the 1982 Southern Open, Bobby Clampett. We're going to delve into his college playing days at BYU, his time on the tour during the early part of the 1980s, and his impact zone training philosophy. So much to get into with Bobby. Again, one of the most decorated players in the history of our game. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him will be two-time Tennessee Teacher of the Year, Virgil Herring. Really looking forward to having Virgil as part of the show. We've been following each other on social media for several years. Really looking forward to having him here with me tonight. Virgil earned his PGA management degree at Mississippi State. We'll get into that program. He taught several tour players, including nine-time winner Brant Snedeker, who said he wouldn't have been who he was out on tour without Virgil. We'll hear about their relationship. Plus, we'll get a couple of playing lessons as well. Virgil will join me a little bit later on in the hour. At the top of the next hour, we'll round out things with a visit from former PGA Tour caddy Larry Molestic. Larry was on the bag for several tour legends, including Gary Player, Chichi Rodriguez, Bruce Crampton, Lee Trevino, Orville Moody, and Tom Weiskopf. He's written a wonderful book titled Golf Road, My Time with the Masters of the Game. The forward was written by Gary Player. Larry has a boatload of great stories. His book is wonderful. It's a real page turner. You just go from great story to great story. So looking forward to hearing some of those when he joins me about an hour from now. So we're going to have a lot of fun on tonight's show, folks. Thank you for being here and taking the journey with me tonight. With the show now being available on TribLive.com and with all my Yinzer friends up there in the Pittsburgh area, you get to start to meet some wonderful individuals in and around the city. And I did just that with Caroline Cease and the folks at Enchanted Destinations. If you're ready to start planning your dream vacation, be sure to check out 
Carolyn and the folks there at Enchanted Destinations. If you're planning to go to Disney World, the Universal Studios, take a cruise or vacation at an all-inclusive resort, go to EnchantedDestinations.net and Carolyn and her folks are going to help you out and plan the perfect getaway. They're great people doing great things and they are a wonderful help for anybody that's looking to book the perfect vacation. And thinking of the perfect golf getaway and buddies trip location, remember our folks over at the McLemore, which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction and will open summer of 2024. And the Outpost is another wonderful Bill Bergen and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back with me is a guy who's become a wonderful friend of the show and I enjoy immensely, and that's 1989 Open champion and four-time U.S. Ryder Cup team member Mark Halkovecchia. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980, He was named All-SEC in 1979, and that season, Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981, got his first win on tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set the record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including that 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon. He did so in a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times out on the Champions Tour, and over the course of his career, he's had 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25s. He's a fantastic follow out on Twitter, at Mark Kalk. And I'm thrilled to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. 
Hey, Chris, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I always love being on your show. I appreciate that very much. So, Mark, I got to have you on the show a little bit earlier this year. You had both knees replaced last year. You healed up and were back out competing on the Champions Tour back in June. You shot four under for the tournament at the Principal Charity Classic, which I thought was amazing. How you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good now. Uh, the, the next week had a kind of a weird mishap with the motor home where I kind of uh, strained my, the ligament in my knee. So uh, that was another uh, month to let that heal. And uh, played Seattle uh, about a month ago and played okay. And then uh, just decided that I uh, wanted to hang out in North Carolina at our little cabin up there. And uh, uh, now we're back in Florida. So I'm going to play the last two tournaments on the Champions Tour, uh, the, the Jim Furyk's tournament. Uh, in Jacksonville and then the SAS in uh, Cary, North Carolina. So uh been, been playing some golf here with friends at home and uh, feeling pretty good. So, Mark, have you thought about how long do you want to continue to play out on the Champions Tour? Do you have a time frame or are you just going to let your body tell you? <laughs> well, my, my friend today just sent me the uh, the senior U.S. Open schedule. Uh, I guess he's from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, uh, him and uh, this guy, his name's Trent Wilhite. Brenda grew up together in Columbus and, uh, uh, senior us open is going to be at the Scioto back in uh, 2026. And he, 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 he texted me and says, you got three more years in you. I'm like, whew, that's a tall order. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll see, but, uh, you know, I actually do feel pretty decent. Um, uh, you know, looking forward to the next couple of weeks and then the next year I will play more, uh, you know, uh, body willing and, uh, uh, the only other issue, you know, I was gonna, uh, I was planning on playing the first tee, uh, last week, but then just kind of, uh, the older I get, the, the harder it is to, uh, to make trips like that. And, uh, uh, you know, travel's becoming a little more difficult, uh, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, I, I plan on playing, uh, maybe 15 tournaments the next couple of years and, uh, see how it goes after that. Mark, it's Ryder Cup week and you got to play on four Ryder Cup teams. You did so in 1987, 89, 91, and then again in 2002. Where did those experiences rank for you among the events that you got to be a part of so far over the course of your career? Well, those were amongst the, 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 the best times. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, once I made my first Ryder Cup team in 87 and, and amazingly enough, at the start of 1986, I didn't even have status on the PGA tour. So to be on the Ryder Cup in 87 was a, was a pretty fast turnaround and, and only played two matches, but went one and one and, uh, knew right then. And, and we lost at Nearfield Village the first time we'd lost on American soil. And, uh, I knew it was definitely something I wanted to be a part of again. Uh, years down the road, I was able to make the next, next few teams and, uh, 89 was disappointing and ended up in a tie. So they got to keep the cup, which kind of happened. The same thing happened in the Solheim cup this year. So I, I think that needs to be at, addressed that uh, I think if it's a tie, we got to have some sort of playoff system. Uh, you know, ties just kind of seem kind of lame after, you know, all that golf, three days of intense competition. Uh, anyway, uh, and then, you know, we, we squeaked out the win in 91 and, 
and actually had a great time in 0-2, uh, uh, although we lost. Uh, but, you know, those experiences were uh, – I was just talking – I played with Eric Cole this morning, who's had an amazing year. Uh, I, I think he's going to be Rookie of the Year. A uh, good friend of mine, and, and he asked me a lot about Ryder Cup stuff, and we were talking about that today. And uh, I can't wait to watch it this weekend. And Mark, we're a couple of days from when they first will tee it up in the in the first of the matches on Friday. But those those couple of days leading up to the event, what was what was that like for you? I got to imagine it's it's a lot of emotion. It's you know a lot of buildup. How'd you deal with the pressure and the coming events? The, the couple of days leading up to when you first teed off? From what I remember, I, I couldn't wait uh, to get past Thursday night. Um, I think it's a little bit different now, but uh, all the Ryder Cups we played, we had uh, Code and Tide dinners uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, you know, opening ceremonies were Thursday, and there was another dinner. Um, and we were just, you know, by that time, when you're there for four days before the event starts, you're you're just so anxious to 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 put all that stuff behind you and 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 get your outfits on and and go represent your country and and start the Ryder Cup. Uh, I'm sure the guys are getting pretty anxious. Uh, you know, one more full day, and uh, I know they're all looking forward to Friday morning. As you mentioned in '87, you had been out on tour for a few years. At that point, you finished in the top twenty. And three of the four majors that year, but how did seeing it up in a Ryder Cup compare to playing in a major? Uh, I, I probably uh, for sure at that time was the most nervous I've ever been. Um, the first day in the afternoon, I, I teamed up with Andy Bean, and uh, you know, even though luckily the first hole at Muirfield Village is a pretty wide fairway, and I was I was able to get it in the fairway and hit it on the green. And I played okay after that, but then I hit a couple of bad shots at 17 and 18. And, uh, we ended up losing those two holes. And, uh, Jack, Jack, uh, Nicholas wasn't very happy with us, but, uh, I do. And then I was disappointed that I didn't get to play the next day and, uh, I was fired up to go out Sunday. I played Nick Faldo and, uh, beat him one up. Uh, so that was, that was super exciting. And, and that's, that's when I knew I said, this, this is, this has got to be the coolest tournament uh, of all time. You are not the only rookie, if you will, on the Ryder Cup team in 87. Scott Simpson, Payne Stewart, Larry Myers, Dan Pohl were also rookies on that team, which is a heck of a rookie class. And as you mentioned, Jack Nicklaus was the captain. You had right. some other older veterans out there, Larry Nelson, Lanny Watkins, Tom Kite. Um, did you get to spend some time with those guys to talk about what it was, what you should expect? to be a part of the Ryder Cup and what those events and, and the foursomes and the four ball and the singles and all of that was going to be like, or did they leave you guys alone? No, we, uh, you know, once, once you get, everybody gets in the team room and, and, uh, of course, when Jack Nicholas talks, everybody listens and, uh, you know, he was telling us what to expect. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, guys like Tom Kite and Larry Nelson and Lanny Watkins and, uh, and those guys, uh, you know, Larry Nelson and Lanny were were a, a pretty uh, formidable team. Uh, they were hard to beat. Uh, the the thing I remember most about that week was, uh, you know, Jack wanted to get the green super duper fast and and try to freak out the European team, uh, and it kind of actually backfired. 
for them, it was like putting on pool tables, and they, they made everything that week, especially uh, Jose Mario Fable, who was uh, one of the greatest putters ever, and Seve. Uh, those two were uh, unbeatable that week. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, they, they, they beat us. And, uh, you know, that was really kind of the start of the uh, – you know, the start of the Ryder Cup, because uh, we had dominated in all the years prior to that. And that was kind of the start of uh, when the European Tour became really good with uh, Faldo and Woosnam and, and Bernhard and, and uh, you know, all those guys. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it was, it was super cool, though. At the beginning of a Ryder Cup year, how much was making the team a part of your goal that season or? Or was that just a really great byproduct of having a great year? In 87, that's kind of what it was. Uh, I'd won my first tournament in 86, so I knew I was going to be full exempt in uh, 87. End up winning the Honda Classic. Uh, and, you know, had a bunch of top tens and just kept working my way up the list. And, uh, you know, I was aware that uh, that back then there were only two spots uh, to pick. Uh, and I think I finished seventh or eighth on the list i'm not sure what it was but uh uh you know and then the next thing you knew i was on the Ryder cup team so it happened happened really quick uh but you know after that uh 88 89 90 91 those were really you know the prime years of my career and uh i was always very uh very aware of uh top tens uh at that time you needed top tens i don't know what the criteria is today whether it's fed a couple FedEx Cup points or what it is, but uh, back then you needed top tens for Ryder Cup points, and uh, uh, I, I had a lot of top tens. I was very consistent, and uh, I think that was uh, the Ryder Cup that I played were a, a result of my uh, consistent play. Mark, a lot is being said about the captain's picks and players on the team having a say in who those guys should be on any of the teams you played on. Did any, did any of you guys have a say on on who you thought the captain's pick should be or who you wanted to be partnered with? No, not really. Not not back in the late 80s and early 90s and even in the 2002 team with Curtis. Uh, I was never really asked, you know, who I thought would be good picks. Uh, I do remember in 95, uh, I was ninth going in. Again, just two picks into the PGA Championship, which was the last tournament. And Jeff Maggard had a great week all week. He was solid every every day. So I knew he was going to pass me. But then Brad Faxon shot 63 on Sunday and passed me by a point zero five of a point. Wow. And, and Lanny didn't pick me. And he said he never really thought about picking me because he always thought I was going to be on the team. So he never really thought of me as a pick. So. I, I still give him crap about that, uh, every, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, no, I was never really uh, approached about who, uh, I mean, who I thought was going to be a pick. But as far as, as who I was going to be paired with, uh, I knew Andy Bean very well. Uh, and I thought we were going to play it the next day again in 87. Uh, and then in 89, I knew for a fact that Ken Green and I were going to be, uh, alternate shop partners uh and we and we won our our match uh in alternate shot the first day went out in the afternoon and i think jose and Sevy beat us 
But then we went out again on Friday or on uh, Saturday, won our alternate shot match again. And then uh, uh, Raymond Floyd sat Ken Green. And uh, I, I think I played with Mark McCumber, and I think we lost one down uh, on the last hole. Uh, but then Kiowa, same sort of thing. You know, Captain Stockton asked me, you know, who do you, I, I know you went 2-0 and last year or two years ago in alternate shot. Who do you want, you're going to play every match or at least four of them. Who do you want to play with an alternate shot? And I said, well, Payne, you know, Payne and I are great friends. Uh, you know, we don't have to apologize to each other for hitting a bad shot or, or anything like that. And uh, sure enough, Payne and I went out and had a great time and uh, uh, and won both our alternate shot matches there as well. So. Uh, those are the really the two times that uh, uh, I really requested somebody to play with. Speaking of playing in every match, in 89, you did just that, and your matches were going 15, 16, 17 holes. You won two, lost two in the first four matches, and then Roman Rafferty got you one up in the Sunday singles. But how much did you have left in the tank by the time you got to the back nine on Sundays? I mean, are you going on pure adrenaline? when you're teeing it up on Sunday after having played every match to that point? I, I think you are on pure adrenaline. Uh, you know, back then I was only, uh, what, 29 years old. Uh, I don't know about the kids today, but uh, when I was in my 20s, I didn't get tired. Uh, you know, I, t- I know uh, today is a little bit different with uh, some, some of the stress and uh, everything that goes on with the tour. But, uh, man, I... I I couldn't wait to play every match and uh I don't ever ever remember feeling tired at any any point uh during any of those matches uh you know you just fired up to play and uh you don't think about your feet hurting or you don't think about anything you just uh you just want to go play and win your match In 91 at the War at the Shore I had Chip Beck on the show last week and the match there at Kiowa Island and at that time the course was kind of newer, but the yeah. bugs were fierce. Chip talked <laughs> right. about the, the no seams giving you guys an advantage, he thought, because the Europeans had never had to deal with bugs like that. Was it an advantage or did they drive you crazy? Oh, man. I, I'll never forget. Chip was on the range. Uh, we were having a morning practice session, maybe on Wednesday or whatever day it was. And, uh, the bugs were brutal. And, uh, out of nowhere, Chip just says, boys, I guarantee you they don't have bugs like this over there. <laughs> these bugs are gonna, these bugs are gonna eat them alive. I love it. You know, he was all fired up and we just all started laughing. Uh, you know, Chip, Chip's one of the most positive, uh, human beings I've ever met, uh, or, or ever played with. Uh, uh, one, one year we're playing Harbor Town. And on the 16, there's a little pine tree right dead middle of the fairway. And Chip, uh, Chip pipes it right down the middle of the fairway. And Dad signed me behind that little tree. And he says, you know what, Calc? I said, what, Chip? He goes, that's a well-placed tree. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's Chip back for you right there. Um, but, yeah, he he was, uh, he was made us all laugh about the no-seams and the bugs. And, uh, yeah, I think during the tournament, the, actually, there was enough wind where uh uh the, I, don't, I don't really remember the bugs being an issue because it was uh it was pretty windy all week 
2002 was your last Ryder Cup experience, and you made the team over a decade after your previous time. That in and of itself had to be a great accomplishment. How satisfying was it for you to come back 11 years later and be a part of the team? Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, I really had a good stretch of golf, uh, and I was feeling pretty good. I was, uh, what, 41, uh, you know, and then uh, got canceled because of 9-11, obviously. And, uh, but I, I was playing really good. And I remember, uh, the O two, uh, never was it the O one. I don't know. I think it was the O one, uh, PGA was at Atlanta Athletic Club because at that time, um, we still thought we might be playing the Ryder Cup. And, and Curtis told me to get my butt in gear and have a good tournament. So, uh, you know, I'd make the team on points and I finished fourth, I think. Uh, so I do remember that and felt great about that accomplishment that week. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously he was in touch with all of us about, uh, what we wanted to do. And then, uh, obviously it got canceled, but, um, yeah, O2 was still a lot of fun. Uh, uh even though I, I think Sam Torrance did an amazing job on their side there. I don't, I seriously don't think they cut the greens at the Belfry, uh, after Friday morning. Uh, they got slower and slower and by Sunday, uh, you know, I went back and watched a lot of the uh, replay of it. We couldn't get a putt to the hole and, uh, they, they knew the greens were going to be super slow. And, uh, and that's, that's, that was great captaining, uh, by Sam Torrance that, uh, uh, to make the greens that slow because it, it more or less freaked us out. And I think that was the difference in the match, uh, that day. As you mentioned, you guys won the Cup in 1991. Looking back at that year, what's your favorite celebratory moment? Well, that's a good question. In 91, when we won at Kiowa, I was still kind of in a state of shock uh, about my finish against Monty, although we won. And I, I remember I was down in front of the green, kind of huddling down low. Uh, Payne Stewart had his arm around me. Um, he was watching Bernhard Pod. I couldn't watch. And then I just heard this roar and, uh, pain, pain grabbed me, uh, picked me up, gave me a big hug, hug and just said, we won, we won, we won about 10 times. And after that, uh, it was kind of all a blur. Uh, I don't remember going out into the ocean in our blue blazers, uh, that picture you've seen a bunch over the years and, uh, don't really remember a whole lot about that night, but. Uh, I remember getting to San Antonio the next week and had about a thousand letters in my locker and wow. every single one of them I read and every single one of them said nothing but great things uh, to congratulate me on uh, on being one of the biggest reasons why we won the team. And, and Captain Stockton said the same thing, that uh, when I got off to that great start against Monty on Sunday, it really fired the rest of the team up. And uh, he thought that had a lot to do with it. So uh, I, I, I've always appreciated that. Zach Johnson has received some criticism for some of his captain's picks. If you were the U.S. team captain, what would you be looking for to decide who your six captain's picks are? Are you looking for experience? Or are you looking for the guy who's hot at the end of the season? What would you be looking for in order to make those picks? Well, I, I think a little of both. You know, Zach picking Justin Thomas, I, I think, was a, a, just a feeling of experience. You know, he's won two PGAs. His dad's a PGA professional. Uh, that, that's got a lot to do with it. 
Uh, and obviously, I think the only reason he picked Brooks is because he won the PGA last year. Uh, although he's a great player. I mean, they're all great players. Um, you know, I kind of felt bad for uh, Keegan Bradley and uh, Lucas Glover. Lucas is, uh, well, they're both getting up there. Uh, but, but Keegan's played in a Ryder Cup. Lucas hasn't. Um, you know, Sam Burns is going to be on future Ryder Cup teams. I, I, I might not have picked Sam Burns and, and Justin Thomas, and I'm, I'm sure they're both going to play great this week, and I hope they do. Uh, but I, I really felt like uh, uh, what Lucas did at the end of the year uh, really deserved a pick, and, and Keegan had, I think Keegan won two or three times, so he had a, he had a great year as well. But it, it's a tough situation to be in. Uh, you know, people are still giving him grief for not picking Bryson or, or DJ from the Live Tour. Uh, but you know, like, like Rory McIlroy says, they made their decision to go play there and they knew the consequences and, uh, you know, just leave it at that. Uh, so, uh, that, that's kind of the way I feel as well. As you mentioned back when you were trying to qualify for the Ryder cup team, it was 10 automatic picks and, and two yep. captains picks. are six captains picks too many. Should we go back to the 10 automatic burst plus the, plus the two? At least, at least eight or nine, if not 10. Um, uh, because, you know, Cameron Young, what was he eighth on the list and didn't get picked? And, uh, somebody else was ninth or something. I, you know, I think if you finish in the top eight or nine over a two year period, you know, I think that deserves a chance to be in the Ryder Cup team. Uh, yeah. That six picks is ridiculous. I mean, if you're going to do that, why don't, why don't you just pick all 12 guys? You know, I mean, <laughs> what the heck difference does it make? Uh, and you can seriously, and I think the pick thing is kind of overrated because all these guys are great players and it's three days of golf every two years, right? Um, if you pick Bryson or DJ or, or whoever, or uh, Eric, my buddy Eric Cole, I played with the last two days. I mean, he just went out and shot 62, 63. Uh, like it was nothing. Uh, I mean, the kid's so good, it's ridiculous. You, you could pick anybody and, uh, th th they're likely to go out there and have a great Ryder Cup. Uh, I mean, that's just how good, uh, and, and I played with Brandon Matthews today. I mean, wow, was that guy good too? Uh, not to mention he hits it about 350 yards. So, uh, the level of talent on tour, uh, today is just, uh, it's really, really insanely impressive. Mark, I've been lobbying for a Ryder Cup-like event on the Champions Tour for years, and we're going to get kind of a combined Ryder Cup and President's right. Cup with the World Champions Cup. That's coming up December 7th through the 10th, appropriately being held at the Concession Golf Club in Bradenton, Florida. Are right. you excited to have something like that on the Champions Tour, and is it something you'd like to play in? Um, yeah, but I kind of think my time's passed me by a little bit. Uh, I'm 63 and, you know, I haven't, haven't played great the last few years, but, uh, I know like as probably close to eight years ago, um, there was a discussion, um, when I was, you know, really playing well, that there was going to be some sort of, uh, type of senior writer cup. And I thought, man, that'll be an absolute blast. And, uh, finally, yeah, it's coming. It's going to be, uh, us, uh, rest of the world in Europe or whatever it is. Um, I think it's going to be super fun to watch. And, uh, uh I, I think, uh, I think the, 
the fan turnout will be great, and I think the uh, TV will be great as well. Going to be uh, it's going to be fun to see. Mark, I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of go back into your playing career. And you're one of only 23 players to have made a thousand starts on tour. What did reaching that milestone mean to you? It was in Dallas a few years ago, and uh, you know, um, I think it was pretty cool. Uh, it really was. It's uh, that's a lot of starts. Uh, Seven hundred and I want to say twenty nine on the PGA Tour, and I made five hundred and twenty some odd cuts. Uh, and you know, playing a decent amount on the Champions Tour. It's uh, it just kind of speaks uh, to my consistency over the years and, and longevity. You know, I think I made the Tour Championship like. 15 out of 17 years or something. So uh, I was always, I, I never really had horrific slumps where, you know, I missed a whole bunch of cuts in a row. Uh, you know, if I missed one or two cuts in a row, it was kind of a shock. And and then, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd have a good tournament or something. So I, I never, ever got too far off with my golf game. And I, I think uh, playing over a thousand tournaments on, on both tours is uh, is, is is really cool to it just kind of shows uh how long i've been around and uh, how consistent i've been over the years mark you are always known for your aggressive style of play they say there wasn't a pin you wouldn't take dead aim for even when you may have been better off playing it safer <laughs> is is that an accurate depiction of how you approach the game just take that aim it, it is and I'll, I'll tell you why uh the first and foremost reason is I was supremely confident in my short game, uh, bonkers and chipping. I think that's one of the reasons I won Phoenix Open three times is because if you miss, if you short side yourself there, you've got an extremely difficult up and down. Uh, but I was never worried about it because I thought I could get up and down from anywhere. Uh, and also, um, it's just ingrained in me for whatever reason. But if I aim away from a pin, uh, right about in the middle of my swing, I'm going to intentionally like push or pull it back towards where the pin is. So if the pin's back left and I'm aimed in the middle of the green trying to hit it 30 feet right of the hole, like Mr. Nicholas did all the time, uh, I'm, 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 I'm either going to pull it back to the flag or over pull it, uh, and, you know, hit it left of the green. Or right of the green. So I, I always said I was better off aiming straight at the flag and then kind of having my miss be a, a push or a pull away from the flag as opposed to uh, aiming away from the flag. And that, that's just my, my mentality in my, in my game where, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I just love to aim at flags. <laughs> you mentioned Jack Nicholas, and I know that uh, you're really good friends with Mr. Nicholas. Um, but to your point, there's a lot of times when Jack would play conservatively, figuring that the other guys were going to make mistakes and he wasn't. Right. Arnold Palmer, on the other hand, was, was like you, very aggressive and he always went for the pin. I, I would have, you know, based on your relationship with Jack, I would have thought maybe you were more conservative, but it seems like even though you're great friends with him, your, your style of play was more like Arnold. I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, you know, Jack was, was, was great because he had such incredible mental discipline to, to hit it where he was aiming it. Um, and even if that was 
comfortable with an eight iron, 25 feet left or right of the hole. Um, he hit it there. And uh, I, I honestly think uh, he believed that uh, if he just made a whole bunch of par, especially major championships, um, that uh, and, and occasionally make a 20 footer or whatever, that uh, he was just going to wear people down with his consistency. And he did do that. But having said that, he finished second how many times? 19 times in majors. Right. And another whatever, 24 thirds or something. I mean, I think if uh, maybe he would have been a little more aggressive in his prime, he, he might have picked off 25 majors. But you can't ever, ever doubt the way Jack Nicklaus uh, thought his way around the golf course. He was, uh, until Tiger Woods, uh, you know, he was by far the greatest uh, that ever lived. Mark, talk about the impact Peter Costas had on your career. Oh, it was huge. Um, you know, I, I was entirely self-taught. I uh, went to see Peter in 1984. Uh, I was kind of on again, off again tour, mini tour player. And, you know, I had a lot of talent, but I hit a big hook. I had plenty of distance back then, even with the wood drivers and whatnot, and a lot of balls. Uh, and he said, okay, you've got distance to burn. we got to figure out a way to get you in the fairway more often. And and then the metal woods came out, uh, the TaylorMade's uh, first metal wood. And he got me a seven-degree metal wood with an extra stiff titanium shaft wow. that was that was virtually unhookable. Uh, if I tried to hook it, it wouldn't get 10 feet off the ground. And, uh, you know, it, it would be ugly. So basically... We retooled my entire game to hit a fade, and it wasn't hard because it was, like I said, it was almost impossible to hook this driver that he set me up with. Uh, he taught me to aim down the left center of the fairway, uh, swing as hard as I could, release it, and trust that it's not going to go left as long as I cleared my hip fast enough. Uh, so that was that was uh, the, the start of when I really started playing good after I started working with Peter. Uh, in, uh, December of 84, uh, 85, I won a, a big, uh, mini tour event against Keith Clearwater in a playoff, BJ Thomas classic Monday qualified for some events. Uh, so I knew I was on the right track and, uh, yeah, Peter, Peter was a big reason for that. Mark, I live here in Atlanta and one of the great running backs in university of Georgia history is a guy by the name of Robert Edwards. And he had a great rookie season in the NFL. For the Patriots yeah. until he blew out his knee playing a flag football game on the beach at the Pro Bowl. And I read you blew out one of your knees one time <laughs> throwing a football around on the beach with Ken Green. Is that true? <laughs> I sure did. Uh, Ken Green and Bill Sander, uh, who won the 76 U.S. Amateur. We, uh, uh, we were buddies back in the early eighties. And, uh, I think it was, uh, I want to say it was the 80. Five Pensacola Open, and we're throwing the football around the beach. Of course, there might have been a few drinks involved, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, landed in a hole and just shredded my meniscus, and uh, could not walk after that. Uh, drove home. I had a hard time pushing the. I had a, a three-speed Camaro Rally Sport with the stiffest clutch you've ever seen, and just to push the clutch in and out, to shifting the car to drive home was agony. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was the first of my knee surgeries and, uh, uh, and I obviously didn't do very well in tour school that, uh, that, that winter. 
I tried to play like three weeks later and uh, didn't work out too good. Mark, before I let you go, remind our listeners again, how can they stay up to date with when you're going to be out on the Champions Tour again and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, the easiest way to track me down is on, uh, well, X now, uh, Twitter at Mark Kelk. And of course, uh, my funnier half and, uh, my wife, uh, and, and part time caddy now. She doesn't caddy as much as she used to at Brenda Kalk. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you updated on, uh, everything that's going on, but, uh, stay tuned. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play the next two tournaments and, uh, play a lot more, uh, next year for sure. And uh, hopefully maybe have a chance to win a tournament again. Mark, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. It's always a privilege and a fun time getting to spend time with you here on this show. I hope we get that privilege again sometime soon. Anytime, Chris. Uh, you got me anytime you need me. Uh, I always enjoy, be- enjoy being on your show, and I think you have the best, uh, best, best show out there. Well, I appreciate that very much. Mark, take care, my friend. All the best to you and Brenda. We look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Chris. See you, Mark. See you. That is the great Mark Kalkovecchia, folks, and it just doesn't get any better than that guy. Just a wonderful human being, as is his wife, Brenda. I always have a a great time when they are a part of the show. It's exciting to know that Mark is, is healing up and ready to get back out on tour again. Look forward to following him over the next couple of tournaments. And as he said, he's going to play 15 next year. So that's fantastic as well. And I'll tell you what, to come back from double knee replacement in your first tournament out, you, you shoot four under par. That's a heck of a, a heck of a tournament. And, uh, I don't put anything past that Marcus could win again out on the champions tour. And now that they've got the world champions cup, boy, I'd love to see him representing the U S the next time around. So best of luck to Mark and to Brenda. We'll catch up with them again soon. Okay, coming up next is going to be a guy who had probably the greatest amateur career of anybody ever. He also won out on the PGA Tour. He was a great golf analyst for 30 years with CBS and now has a wonderful training process called Impact Zone Golf, and that is Bobby Clampett. Before I get to Bobby, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit Scony.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's Scony.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. 
Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right, now next on the tee with me is Bobby Clampett. Bobby has been great at every aspect of our game. He played his college golf at BYU, where he was a three-time All-American. He helped the Cougars to a runner-up finish in the 1979 National Championship. He won the Fred Haskins Award, which is given to the Collegiate Golfer of the Year, and he did so in back-to-back years in 1979 and 80. Among his many amateur titles, Bobby won the 1978 Western Am, beating our friend Mark Wiebe two up. That year, he also won the Porter Cup and led the U.S. team to a victory in the World Amateur Team Championship, where he had the low individual score for the tournament. He won the California State Amateur twice. Bobby turned pro in 1980, and he won the 1982 Southern Open, and he was a member of the 82 World Cup team. He finished second in the 83 New Zealand Open. He finished second three times in the Italian Open, and he tied for third at the 1982 U.S. Open. And that year, he also finished tied for 10th in the Open Championship. And over the course of his playing career, along with that win, he had 27 top time, uh, top five finishes, 44 top tens. And following his playing days, he became one of the all-time great golf broadcast analysts, and he earned his PGA Master Professional status and now is one of the great teachers in our game. He created Impact Zone Golf, which you can go check out online at impactzonegolf.com. And I'm privileged to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bobby, thanks for coming on the show. How you doing, Chris? Nice to be with you. How about Calc? Uh, double knee replacement? My right? God. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good for, uh, you know, he's had a pretty good golf career for a guy who was uh, um, looked like was going to be a professional bowler. <laughs> Is that right? Well, yeah, his dad owned a bowling alley in Nebraska or something like that. And uh, you should ask him someday when you get him back on the air about his bowling prowess. You know, he's probably second best bowler to Jeff Sluman. Is that team. right? Yeah. Sluman once bowled back-to-back 300 games in practice. Wow. Really? Yeah. So, and and you know who his biggest competitor was in the New York Junior Bowling Championships? No. Joey Sindelar. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up, right? Yeah, that's tremendous. I don't know why I remember these stupid nuggets. <laughs> 30 years at CBS, you tend to, some of these things linger in the old memory bank. No doubt. Yeah, Bobby, I want to start our time by going back to your college days at BYU. I had Richard Zocco on the show a few Did weeks you? ago. Yeah, Rick Fair yeah. has also come on a few times, had him on a couple of months ago. I know Richard was one of your teammates and and uh, Rick came uh, just a little bit after you at BYU. But um, we know about you three guys. We know about Johnny Miller, Mike Weir. Talk about the rich golf history at BYU. It is a rich golf history. Uh, and Carl Tucker's the one that's responsible for for making it so. Uh, Carl was our golf coach. He was Johnny Miller's golf coach. He was Mike Weir's golf coach. Richard Zokel and... And uh, numerous other players on the PGA Tour, Keith Clearwater, and Mike Brannon was on my team, and Rick Ferry. You mentioned he was just a, a year younger than than uh, to well, he was four years younger than me. So therefore, we didn't get a chance to to play together on the same team. But uh, Carl was one who 
he had that ability. He wasn't, in the sense, a, a teacher of golf, right? He he did do some light teaching there at the university for beginners, but he wasn't he wasn't one who was was a great teacher, so to speak. What he was 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 a great coach, and he let he did a great job recruiting. Of course, Johnny Miller was his uh, first big recruit, and then Ray Leach right after that, and Chip Garrison, a bunch of different guys. Uh, kind of followed suit, and all of a sudden BYU was the name that started to appear on the, on the leaderboards in college tournaments. And he grew it from there. And, you know, the year before I turned, uh, went to college, there were guys like Mike Brannon and Pat McGowan and Jim Nelford and Mike Reed. All these guys were on the on the, the, the team, that, and they finished second in the NCAA. And so when I came aboard, I was my goal was to to win and coach his first national championship, and we finished uh, fourth, second, and fourth the three years that I was in school. And wouldn't you know, the year I left was the year they won the national championship, <laughs> their only national championship. They found the secret: get rid of me. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case, Bobby. I want to go back to 1978 and the World Amateur Championship. It was held in Fiji at the Pacific Harbor Golf and Country Club, and you team with another great friend of the show, John Cook, plus Scott Hoke and Jay Siegel to win that event. Frank Nabilo was there playing for New Zealand. Great Britain and Ireland had a, had a really good team with Peter McAvoy. What do you remember about winning that tournament? You know what I remember about that tournament, Chris? I remember this is how stupid I was as an 18-year-old. I showed up at the LAX airport with a round-trip ticket to go from LAX to Fiji, courtesy of the United States Golf Association. And I hand the ticket to the ticket agent at the gate, and she says, where's your passport? And I said, what's a passport? <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> so, yeah, I could only imagine what they were saying in the background. Who is this stupid kid? Because yeah, I'd never... I'd never flown out of the country alone before, right? I was just barely 18 years old. And so they, the USGA got, uh, got a hold of the Secretary of the State, Cyrus Vance, at the time. And then they gave me instructions to go immediately to the Los Angeles passport office, took a cab there, and in an hour I had my passport and got on the next flight to Fiji. Wow. Bye. Yeah. Bobby, you also won the Western Amateur Championship that year. It's one of the oldest amateur tournaments in the world, going back to 1899. The greatest players in the history of our game have won it. Your name is now a part of that rich history. You beat our friend Mark Wiebe to get that done. What do you remember about that week? You know what I remember? I remember being two down through seven holes. And I hadn't hit a fairway off the tee yet. And we got to number eight, and they had moved the tee up. It was a short par four. And we usually hit three iron wedge, but they moved the tee up and it was drivable, but it was a super narrow little target. River on the right, trees and junk on the left. And, you know, just well, the way I played, I, I said, well, I'm due to hit a fairway here. Can't hit that many miss, miss shots. And I kind of got my thoughts together and ripped one about 15 feet from the hole and won that hole. And it was really the turning point. And that Mark, we had a really good match, Mark and I, uh, that match. 
I don't remember. I think I won one or two up, but it, it was a tight match. In mid-August of 78, you go out and you win the Porter Cup. You came from three strokes down with six holes to play to top your teammate Jay Siegel by two. You set the course record in the second round of the tournament with a 62. And I read that to get over your first round 75, you went to a Linda Ronstadt concert, which clearly <laughs> did the trick because you come back the next day and you shoot 62. How did Linda Ronstadt get you back on track? You know, she got me back in rhythm, didn't she? Um, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. I, I I played horrible the first round. It was probably the worst round I'd played all year. And I remember thinking about my round and thinking about what was going on in my swing and then just sitting there listening to the music. It was just uh, magical. It really was. And I I woke up the next morning in such a better mood and and I she just kind of changed my whole demeanor and went out there and birdied the first hole, went on to shoot 30 on the back nine and, and uh, shot 62 that day. It was, it was just a, an amazing day. Did you ever get to tell her that story? No, I never got to meet her. Aww. Sadly. Yeah. Bobby, I also read that early on Homer Kelly and Ben Doyle and their philosophy of the golf swing called the golf machine was something that you really latched on to. I tried to take a look at the book and thought you need to be an aerospace engineer to understand how technical that book is. How'd you figure it out? Well, I had Ben Doyle to teach it to me and he was, he was the best first authorized teacher of the book. And, uh, the one who probably understood it even better than Homer Kelly did. But you know, I was, I was, talking to my good friend, Michael Murphy, you know, the author of Golf in the Kingdom. And uh, Michael was telling me the uh, the other day, he said that, you know, he he found a great use for the book. And I said, what's that, Michael? He said, you know, back in my day, and Michael used to be a four handicap, and he used to play for some money. And he had this one guy who uh, kept beating him all the time. And uh, Michael had lost quite a bit of money to this gentleman. So one day he actually gave him a copy of the golfing machine and said, you know, Bobby Klimpett's proposed reporting that this, this book is the secret to improving your golf game. And the guy read it and Michael, Michael continued to beat him all the time after that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the golfing machine is, uh, it's an interesting study. Uh, of course, I, I benefited a great deal from, from Ben's teaching of it to, to me, and but on the surface, if if you hand the book to somebody, they're gonna it's gonna make their head spin. You know, you look at the book and you see twenty four component parts to the golf swing, fifteen variations of each component part over a trillion different combinations of swings, and your head's just spinning. So. Uh, but it's it's really it's it's more of a catalog of what's available kind of book rather than a how-to golf book, and that's the way Ben and I always approached it, which really became the predecessor to my work with creating and writing the Impact Zone, and then all the books that I've written subsequently with all the instructor training that we've done that's superseded the Impact Zone. The foundation of it all really does stem in its core elements from the golfing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next is how much influence did that book have on the, on what you're doing now with Impact Zone? It seems like it must be a lot. 
Yes, uh, some people refer to Impact Zone as golfing machine for dummies. Uh, it's very different than the golfing machine, and but it's it's uh, and its approach to how to play golf is uniquely different because our whole uh, our whole belief with impact based teaching is that you can have a, a wide variety of styles of swings and it's what you created impact that really matters. And you see this uh, on the PGA Tour all the time. You see uh, all these. Uh, Matt Wolfs or Bryson DeChambeau's or Bubba Watson's or Jim Furyk's that have these weird, crazy swings, yet they're some of the best golfers in the world. And how can you explain that? It reminds me of an article I, I read one time as a teenager, and it was written by Dick Altman, senior editor for Golf Digest. And Dick titled the article about Lee Trevino's Seven Wrongs Make a Miraculous Right. And it was a fascinating approach to an article and it was very truthful because Lee Trevino did seven things that were categorized as dramatically wrong and nobody should ever do these seven things. Yet he was one of the greatest ball strikers of all time. So it really is that mindset to whether you know it or not, everybody is indoctrinated with what we call style-based thinking because that is the way golf has been taught all these years is about connect the dots, a bunch of static positions. It's got to look this way. The club's got to be skier. And the reality is, no, it doesn't. It's what you're doing at Impact. And our whole way of teaching is to allow people to embrace their individualism, embrace their style that they have adopted themselves and learn to improve their impact. And when they improve their impact, that's when they improve their game. Bobby, you go through five dynamic stages of the swing, and I, I want to get your thoughts on two of them because first, at the top of the backswing, you talk about loading the club. What does that mean? So loading the club is really important. It's loading the shaft. It's done through the full cocking or hinging of the lead wrist. In my case, that's my left wrist. So it's this loading motion here at the top of the backswing that really uh, is critical to set up the downswing. As one brilliant instructor once said, you don't hit the ball with your backswing. Absolutely 100% true. But when you're in a maximum loaded position, it allows you the potential for maximum lag and maximum club head speed. And also to move what we call the swing bottom further forward. So uh, all those things are a benefit to playing better golf. And stabilizing the club head at impact, creating more consistency as well as more distance. Homer Kelly once said that power alignments are also accuracy alignments. So the things that occur at impact that give you maximum power are also the same things that give you max, maximum accuracy. And I've always believed that. And the, the impact zone is uh, derives its uh, five dynamics in a way that we create maximum power and maximum accuracy because they're both very important in golf. One of the other principles you talk about in the downswing is lag the load. What is lag the load? So you know who gave me that term? Uh, Janet Coles. Uh, grew up with Janet, LPGA player, won several times on the LPGA Tour, longtime coach. And she, she was uh, one of my early uh, instructors. 
and really gravitated to the concept of impact-based teaching. And Janet said, you know, Bobby, she said, it's really quite simple. On the backswing, you load the lag, and on the downswing, you lag the load. And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, Janet, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what you do. So lag is, as Homer Kelly described it, is the secret of golf. And Ben taught me clubhead lag when I was 13 years old. It's been a signature mark of my swing. Um, and, and so on the backswing, you load the lag. And then on the downswing, you lag the load that you create on the backswing. And that's what allows you to have all the, the good things that impact, the forward swing bottom, the flat lead wrist, the stability of the club head. All those kinds of things are related to uh, that club head lag. Bobby, just a couple more before I let you go. And I know you're also working with our friends over at Squares Golf. What sold you on their shoes? Yes. Um, you know, I was just playing the other day with them and somebody asked me the same question. And <clears throat> it's from a principle of creating greater surface area on your feet. I'm a big proponent of using the ground to deliver the lag into the ball. And I'm also serve on the advisory team for Swing Catalyst. We have motion pressure plates in our studios in Florida. And when you use the ground more, um, it's it's the best delivery for club head lag. And so when you have greater surface pressure from your shoes, it can only help increase ground force reaction, which is the secret to delivering the lag is through good ground force reaction. Bobby, the golf auction.com sold one of your putters earlier this year. It was a Scotty Cameron three putter, an old bullseye style putter. And I don't want to talk about the auction. I got to get your thoughts on how were you ever able to putt with a bullseye putter? Because that thing had a sweet spot about the size of a dime. You know, what sold me, I was always a bullseye putter from junior golf on. In my rookie year on tour, I had the privilege of meeting Karsten Solheim, the inventor of ping golf. And, of course, Karsten was the, also the inventor of the ping answer putter that was the most popular putter on the PGA Tour. And, and I sat in, in Karsten's office, just the two of us talking, and... One of the things I asked him, I said, well, what do you think of the physics behind a bullseye? And he said, John Ritter's one of the greatest designers ever. And he said that uh, it's one of the most stable putters through its engineering that you could possibly design. He said, it's a brilliant design. And I thought for a guy who's, in, who's invented the number one putter in the, in the world, number one putter on the PGA Tour, and everyone was talking about it, to commend John Reuter and his design of the bullseye was pretty remarkable. And, and um, you know, it's just amazing when you get to play the PGA Tour for as long as I have. I'm sure Cal would say the same thing. Some of the people you get to meet and spend time with over the years is so valuable. And I, I just look back on, on my career and some of those moments uh, like that moment with Garston Solheim or Ben Hogan or Byron Nelson or Jack Nicholas or whoever you want to talk about. Um, amazing time. Bobby, before I let you go, how can our listeners get lessons from you 
and learn more about the Impact Zone by following you on your website or on social media? Well, the first, uh, first step is call my assistant, Olivia, at 239-236-5536. That number is on our website at impactzonegolf.com. And schedule a new student assessment. I teach almost half the year here in California, the other half of the year in Naples, Florida. I've got studios in both places now. And we, uh, that's, that's what we start. And, and every lesson's individual, Chris, with me and, I like to really get to know my students. I like to know what their goals are, their history, uh, how they've learned the game, other sports that they've played, that kind of thing. And I like to to really break it down in a new student assessment. That's why it's a two-hour assessment with a with a call that occurs beforehand, and set them up for success. Uh, most most people realize, and it's true that there is no magic pill. I would love. I'd love to be able to say, hey, you come see me in an hour, two hours, you're going to be fixed for life and you're going to be a plus four handicap and it's easy peasy. No, it's not the way it works. Golf is a hard game and there are a lot of learned, learned movement patterns. And the longer you've been playing the game, a good teacher knows how to take the good aspects of what that player has and learn how to prioritize what the aspects that need improving to give them the maximum benefit are. I think that's where my strengths are to help people shift through that because, uh, you know, that's, that's the difference between impact-based teaching and style-based teaching. I don't try to change people's styles of swing. I try to use what they have and what they do that's workable and, and may in some cases even good and just make it better. Well, Bobby, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. I hope we have the privilege of catching up with you sometime soon because I know we've just scratched the surface of your wonderful career and what you're doing now. Hope we get that opportunity again sometime. Anytime, Chris. Uh, always enjoy talking to you. Keep up the good work that you're doing. And uh, I know you got a lot of great listeners out there wanting to improve their games and wanting to... to uh, play more golf. So thanks for encouraging them. And thanks for spreading the, the goodness of this game. I appreciate that very much. Bobby, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your okay. family. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. See you, Bobby. That is the great Bobby Clampett, folks. Again, impactzonegolf.com is the website. The number he gave out, 239-236-5536, is how you can try to schedule a lesson with him. The guy has just achieved everything there is to achieve, practically, in our game and is now one of the great instructors. So reach out to him, give him a follow, and check out Impact Zone Golf. Bobby's a great guy, and hopefully, like I say, we get the privilege of having him back on the show again soon. Coming up next is going to be one of the top instructors in our game and a two-time Tennessee Teacher of the Year Award winner, Virgil Herring. Before I get to Virgil, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. 
Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arcos Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Now making his next on the T debut with me again is one of the top instructors in our game and a guy that I have followed for years, Virgil Herring. Virgil earned his degree in marketing and professional golf management at Mississippi State University. A couple of years later, he started his high-performance golf academy in Nashville, Tennessee. Just a few years after that, Virgil was named the 2003 Tennessee Section Teacher of the Year. He has been named the Middle Tennessee Chapter Teacher of the Year five times. U.S. Kids named him one of their top 50 instructors. Future Champions Golf named him a top 25 elite coach in 2015. That year, he won the Tennessee Teacher of the Year Award for a second time. Virgil has worked with tour players like Brant Snedeker, Harry Taylor, Brad Fable, Kim Williams, and Megan Grehan. He's helped over 220 players get a college scholarship. He's also written three books titled Excavated, Elevated, and The Golf Journal, Improving Your Game. You can check out all three of those books on his website, virgilherring.com, and the spelling of his last name is H-E-R-R-I-N-G, so virgilherring.com, or you can also find them out on Amazon. He also has his own podcast called On The Verge. Plus, you can check out his YouTube channel where he's got several free playing lessons. You can find them by doing a search at Golf Advice and Tips, and I'm excited I get to have Virgil with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Virgil, thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing wonderful, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very honored to be here. Virgil, um, as a guy, you, you went through college and you and you got your professional golf management degree, clearly had a love for the game going in. What made you decide to go that route and why Mississippi State? Well, at the time, you know, this is like 1992, there were only full, four schools that had it. And it was Ferris State. Mississippi State, New Mexico State, and the year that I graduated, Penn State got theirs. So even though I'm from Pennsylvania, I really like the idea of in February when I, I hopped in the car and drove 15 hours, I left, it was nine degrees and 14 inches of snow. And when I arrived in Mississippi, it was 81 and sunny. I said, <laughs> I am home. <laughs> so, and you know, I love Mississippi State, and I'm very fortunate to – I've had a lot of good breaks that put me into, you know, that university, the internships, the opportunity to be mentored by Bill Strasball and to land in a, a city like Nashville, Tennessee, uh, 
I mean, a lot of things worked out beautifully for me, and I'm very grateful. You mentioned Bill Strasbaugh, and obviously a giant in our game. Talk about your relationship with him. Well, back in the day when the PGA education was business schools, uh, the PGA would send two teachers to the universities to teach how to teach golf on a Saturday and a Sunday. So one of them was a good friend of yours and multiple time on your show, Tom Patrick, and Bill Strasbaugh. Bill Strasbaugh asked a question uh, in day one of the of the seminar that he said to me that nobody had ever answered correctly before. So at the first break, he said that he wanted to meet with me, and he then invited me to his hotel to watch the ninth, the, the final round of the ninety six Masters, which was one that Norman uh, heroically gave away to Nick Faldo. And we spent all night together. The next day, he he invited me to Columbia Country Club. We spent multiple days together there, and I invited him back to Mississippi State when I was the president of the program. And later, he gave me everything that he ever used to be a great teacher, me still not knowing that he had leukemia and wasn't feeling well, was uh, didn't feel like he had much time left. And literally, after he gave me everything that he'd ever done, that was the last time I ever talked to him because it wasn't long after that. His health declined significantly and he passed away and possibly the most influential person that I've ever met as it pertains to my golf career, without a doubt. You spent some time at West Haven Golf Club in Franklin, Tennessee, as an instructor there. It's an Arthur Hills design. Looks fantastic from what I saw online. Talk about your time there. Well, I'm a member there now. I was there for six years as a teacher. Uh, I was displaced. Uh, in 2010, Nashville had the you know 10,000-year flood we got. 40 inches of rain in 23 hours, 1.2 billion gallons of water fell in Nashville, and I lost my home and my business. And uh, West Haven invited me to come teach there after the flood, and I taught there for six years. Uh, it's a great golf course. It's a risk-reward golf course in which there I'd say there's 13 birdie holes and five double bogey holes, and how well you navigate that menagerie of excitement is what you end up shooting. Um, it's one of my all-time favorite places to play because it's one of the greatest match play golf courses in Tennessee. I love it. Roger, like I mentioned in your intro, you've worked with several tour players, including including Brant Snedeker. He's a Nashville native, played his college golf there at Vandy. He's quoted as saying that he wouldn't be playing out on tour if it wasn't for you. How did the two of you get hooked up? So uh, I really owe a lot of my my success with the elite player to Harry Taylor. PGA Tour player and designer of Mizuno Irons when Mizuno was the Iron on Tour. Uh, Harry played golf with two other tour players that I was working with, Bob Walcott and Brad Fable, and they invited Brant to play at the Golf Club of Tennessee because Brant, you know, he's probably the best. He won the state championship two years in a row with playing at Vanderbilt. And after playing with him, he's like, son, you need to go see. You got some stuff to work on in your swing. You need to go see the guy that we're all going to go see. Virgil Herring. So he came to see me and I had a great eight year run with Brant. Uh, I would probably say that I learned more from him than he learned more learned from me. But uh, it was one of the coolest experiences to watch somebody go from the number one player in college golf to the number one amateur to two time winner on the what is now the Corn Ferry Tour 
to PGA Tour Rookie of the Year. Uh, it was a it was a really wild and fun ride to uh, get a chance to experience. You know, a person who ultimately ended up being ranked number six in the world. He's probably one of the ten greatest putters in the history of the game, and an all around great human being. So let's take that last piece a little further. You're right. He is probably one of the all-time great putters. When you were working with him, is that a part of the game that you worked on together? Is that something that you learned from him? Talk about you know his his great ability to be such a wonderful putter. Well, I, I would probably say what what's, makes Brent so special is whatever line that Brent's brain sees on the green his body delivers the appropriate speed for that line as good as anybody i've ever coached the ability to match line and speed is his gift uh i've always felt like i hit the golf ball great most of my life even still today but i was given the biblical disease leprosy my my game uh, my line and my speed do not quite match and when i was around brant it was just amazing how his ball, it looked like it was hungry to get into the hole. And it looked like my ball was running away from the hole. It's uh, it's a, it's magic to watch him play because he doesn't wow you off the tee and he doesn't wow you from the fairway, although he's very good. What's really remarkable, he and Spieth have separated themselves from that 20 to 30 foot range. Those two guys are so far ahead of the rest of the tour from that distance. It's unbelievable, and it's really his gift, which is the ability to match line and speed. You've done some work also with the Golf Channel as a lead academy instructor. What was it like for you being in studio and doing some work with our friend Charlie Reimer? Well, you know, that run on the Golf Channel, I was very fortunate to be one of the first 20 selected, and Lauren Anderson, who was uh, the original guy who got Golf Magazine Top 100 list started, uh, brought me in. Uh, it was a it was a magnificent run. You know, when you get a chance to be at basically the pinnacle of golf instruction, which would be on Golf Channel, on Morning Drive, and all of the digital platform stuff that I got a chance to do, and to meet all the people that you see on TV and humanize them in person, it was phenomenal. I had a a, a handful of great times live with Charlie Reimer. We got along great. Um, it was it was phenomenal and. I, I thrive in that atmosphere. I love live live studio. I mean, I've done TV now for 17 years. I've done radio for 18 years, and I got my podcast. So it's just kind of I'm wired for it. It gets me it gets me in the zone. I get exhilarated to do it, and it's something that I greatly miss. And COVID ended the Golf Channel Academy, and it was a sad day for me. But nevertheless, the memories that I have from all the great people that I worked with while I was there was it was spectacular. Virgil, let's change gears a little bit. And I want to get your thoughts on how much of being a great coach is knowing the X's and O's of the golf swing and how much of it is an art form because no two swings are really the same. And certainly no two players learn the same. How much of it is, is technical and how much of it is art? Well, that's an awesome question. You know, I've, I've you know, your previous guest, Bobby Clampett, I've done a golf school with Bobby and, um, you know, we have a, a lot of similar ideas, right? There's no such thing as the golf swing. There are some principles that have to be followed. But at the end of the day, we're trying to figure out what it is that you do well. 
fast because in my opinion the number one fundamental of life as it pertains to success is speed it's the businesses that get the job done the fastest that usually are the the most successful and the the greatest pitcher of all time in my opinion through the fastest and the greatest running back was the fastest and the greatest you know the greatest driver of the golf ball happens to also be the guy who swings at the fastest so speed is something that i teach first i want to figure out what it is that you do fast <clears throat> i think that one of the most important places in the golf swing and i got this from bill straws balls what he called the crossroads which was when the golf swing transitions <clears throat> and jim mcclain really helped me with this as well which is there are three swings there's the people who kind of take it outside and drop it in. There are people that take it in and lift it up. And there are people that kind of keep it on playing both back and through. My job is to figure out when you change gears to go really fast, do you drop it? Do you lift it? Or do you just kind of return it? And when, when I find out what that is, I put the golf club in position so that when you hit the gas, whatever it is that you do, you're a natural move places the club on plane early in the downswing. And so that's the art. The art and what makes it so fun for me is never knowing what's going to happen next. But I have I have my system in line. I don't have a, like, I don't, I don't force square pegs into round holes. But my, my breakdown is I want to see you swing fast. I want to see what you do when you change direction. And then from there, I'm going to get you to pivot correctly, put the golf club in a position to slot it onto the plane appropriately, balance the finish. And then from there, we're hitting it really good. And then it's my job to teach how to play the game. Wow. That is one of the best answers I've ever heard. So I just did uh, a brand new video series called the uh, Virgil Harry Golf Blueprint. And I, I kind of did it in a way like this. The first 30 videos that I put out are what I call the fundamentals of playing the game. My next series after that will be what I call characteristics and idiosyncrasy. So once you understand what it's supposed to do, then it's our job to figure out what it is that your body can and can't do so that we can figure out, you know, if, if we say Adam Scott's got the perfect golf swing, but your right arm can't externally rotate to put the golf club on perfect plane like that, but you're, you want to put it naturally slightly across the line like Shane Lowry. Well, all you have to do is kind of do the right matchups. So my job is to explain the true fundamentals of the game. Then to, after you figure out what you, what you naturally do, what are the matchups that go with your tendencies? And then from there, there will be, you know, the faults and fixes. So it's a long series of events and I'm doing it 30 videos at a time and I have 150 videos ready and i'll just be releasing them in order so that you can understand it but i mean to me the golf swing is the least it's it's the most it's the fa most fascinating and it's what's sexy and it sells but my my belief is and what i believe my strength is outside of the mechanics of the golf swing is how to get you to be able to access the talent that you have in your muscle memory slash myelin uh through accessing it correctly through the mind. And the brain plays a huge role in success, obviously. And my, my passion is to figure out how can I get you to believe in everything that you know how to do to shoot the lowest score that you can play.
So let's take that a step further, because we talk a lot about the mental game on this show and the idea of getting us to believe in all of the things that you're teaching, like you just mentioned. How do you go about doing that? Because we do a lot of negative self-talk. We don't have a lot of confidence in ourselves a lot of times out on the golf course. How do you get people to start believing? Well, that's a great question. So, like, I, I believe that it goes like this. I I think that people hope they can do it right until they believe they can do it right. And then they believe they can do it right until they know they can do it right. My job is to shift people from hope to believe to know. So how do we do that? Once you have a repeatable motion that is at least functional. A very good friend of mine and who I believe is the greatest performance coach as it pertains to how the brain accesses talent is Stephen Yellen. And I spent a lot of time with Stephen. And my job is to help you shut off the prefrontal cortex, which is the judge and jury of the mind. It tries to protect you and not just protect you physically, but protect you mentally and emotionally. So when you're setting up over a shot, and it's to whether it's to beat your six college buddies that you went to school with 25 years ago, win the club championship, win a junior championship, or win on the PGA Tour. The shot itself creates a level of supposed danger. What if I don't hit a great shot? What if I hit a shot that humiliates myself? What if it doesn't work out? What uh, all these what ifs and fears? As soon as that it gets engaged with the prefrontal cortex, the brain tries to perfect motion because it doesn't want you to fail. But the downside of that is that radically slows down the transmission of all of the muscle memory that you have from the cerebellum to the muscles. So my job is to figure out a way to distract and or give a job to the prefrontal cortex so that your body can have free flowing access from the cerebellum to the to the muscles to create the shot that you visualize. Once you've hit the shot that you know how to hit, it's really just visualize vividly the shot you're trying to hit, rehearse the motion required to hit the shot. And then what Hal Sutton, it was a brilliant conversation I had with Hal Sutton. Every bad shot he says he's ever hit was not committed. Once you commit, the only thing that you do as you walk into the shot is you stay focused on the intention of the visualization, not drift away from the what ifs, I hope I don't do this, or I hope this happens. You stay committed to exactly what you want to occur and trust the visualization, the rehearsal to a committed place. That's fantastic. Virgil, a couple more before I let you go. And along those same lines, as you know, I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm a huge Steelers fan. On your Instagram page, you have a quote from Mike Tomlin that says, it's not what you're capable of. It's what you're willing to do. Talk about that in terms of your students and those of us that are coming to you who desire to be really good players. Well, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, right? You know, so I'm from Gettysburg uh, originally. and. I, I grew up a, you know, I'm a Penn Stater, right? So I'm a, I'm a Steelers fan because Franco Harris was a Nittany Lion. Jack Ham was a Nittany Lion. There's a lot, a lot of Nittany Lions that played for the Steelers. Um, so here's how I view that. There's a lot of people out there that have what do we call potential. 
some people were so good early in their life that they never learned the work ethic because they were so good that they dominated early and thought they were going to continue to dominate for the rest of their lives. Then there are people that have talent, but they didn't get it till later, but they learned how to work hard and they maximize their talent. And then there's those rare few that are given the God's gift of amazing talent with God's gift of amazing work ethic. And at the end of the day, it's not about what it is that you're capable of. It's what you're, what you're actually willing to do to get there. So recently, I was my understanding from TEDx that I became the first PGA professional to present in a TED talk. And one of the keys that I talked about, and it's, uh, you know, what it takes to be great. What can we learn from great sports teams? and great military teams to apply to our community to make our communities better. And one of those pieces is the ability to take action and do the work that's required. So many people work on the whatever it is that they need, need to do to get better until they can do it right. But Mike Tomlin is clearly stating, you don't do it till you can do it right. You do it till you can't get it wrong. And it's that level of work ethic that I think Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Tiger Woods and Wayne Gretzky and Tom Brady, why are they considered the greatest of their time? It's because they were given oodles of talent, but they never took it for granted. And they worked so hard to perfect it to the best of their ability. And though, even though perfection is not possible in the pursuit of perfection, we often find excellence. And that is what we enjoy and that's what we chase as fans we we emulate and desire to be like them but the difference is what are we willing to do to get there and that is often the the place that separates great from good virgil before i let you go let our listeners know how can they get copies of your book get virtual playing lessons from you and follow you online and on social media uh, the first thing I would do is a, a brand new video series. Is you can go to www.vhblueprint.com. You can go to virgilherring.com. Everything's going to be kind of tied together because it, in, integration is critical. Most of the the my social media postings comes on Instagram, which is virgil.herring. And that's herring like the fish, H-E-R-R-I-N-G. And LinkedIn is where I put a lot of uh, information up as well. My phone number is 615-579-5190. I've never said no to anybody. If you want to learn to play better golf, I will find a way to get you in. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Chris has been, I've been a big fan of what it is that you do for so long. And it's just a, it's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm very grateful. Well, Virgil, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. You're absolutely an outstanding follow on social media and the things that you have done and achieved in teaching this game are probably second to none. I can't thank you enough for sharing some of it. I know we've just reached the tip of the iceberg with you. I hope we get that privilege of having you back on the show again sometime very soon. Uh, I, I will, I would be honored to be a guest at any particular time you ask me, sir, please tell Tom Patrick. I say hello. I will absolutely do that. Virgil, you're outstanding, my friend, all the best to you and your family. Look forward to doing this again soon. Excellent. Thank you very much, Chris. See you, Virgil. That is Virgil Herring. Again, 
the spelling of his last name, H-E-R-R-I-N-G, and uh, the website that he shared, vhblueprint.com. Again, Virgil Herring, right? vhblueprint.com, and the number he shared, 615-579-5190. Virgil is one of the best in our game. He's a fantastic guy, as you just heard. He's, his experience at all different levels of our game are outstanding. I mean, that's why he's one of the top U.S. kids instructors. That's why he's won the Tennessee Teacher of the Year multiple times. And that's why he continues to do great things and being sought after. So, and being sought after also by this show. So I promise you guys, we'll get more from Virgil again very soon. Because like I say, we just barely scratched the surface of the great things that this guy has going on. So I look forward to having him back on the show again. Like I say, hopefully again before the end of this season. Coming up next is going to be a guy who caddied out on the Champions Tour, the PGA Tour, the European Tour for so many great legends of the game and has written a wonderful book about his experiences out there, and that is Larry Molestic. Before I get to Larry, let me remind you about our friends over at Squares Golf. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. All right, now making his next on the T debut with me is Larry Molestic. Larry was a caddy at North Shore Country Club in Glenview, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Later, he caddied on the European Tour for two seasons and then on the PGA and Champions Tour for 12 years. He looped for legends like Orville Moody, Bruce Crampton, Chi-Chi Rodriguez, Gary Player, Lee Trevino, and Tom Weiskopf. He's written a wonderful book full of tons of great stories titled Golf Road, my time with the Masters of the Game, which you can get out on Amazon.com. And I'm excited I get to have Larry with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Larry, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, uh, great. thanks for having me on the show. Uh, really excited uh, to be here. Great guest, by the way. It was great to hear Bobby Clampett and Virgil and uh, just really exciting. Well, Larry, I can't, I can't thank you enough for being here. Your, your book is outstanding. It is such a great read. And right from the very beginning, from the very first pages, it grabbed me because I've always been a huge fan of the Skins game and the Senior Skins game. You start off the book talking about looping for Chichi Rodriguez at the 91 Senior Skins game. What was it like for you being center stage in an event like that that not only had Chichi, but also had Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and Lee Trevino? It, it was pressure packed. I'll tell you, Chris, I had been in a lot of pressure filled situations, but that one was, that was, uh, pretty, pretty pressure filled. It was, you know, there was so much pressure. Even Lee Trevino got quiet. If that, 
puts it into perspective. <laughs> if Trevino gets quiet, you know there's pressure. So it was it was really cool, and uh, I don't want to tell you know I could sit here and spin yarns for for a while, but um, you know I, I do tell a, a story about Lee Trevino, and he got under Jack's skin, and uh, it was it was really a peek into uh, into just how crafty Lee Buck Trevino is. But uh, it, that was that was a really cool tournament. I enjoyed that skins game. Cheech got shut out that year, but then the next year we came back and. He actually uh, he finished second. Arnold won the skins game that year. Now I want you to I want you to tell the story about how Lee tried to get under Jack's skin because as you uh, retell the story in the book, the last four holes were carryovers and the group had to go into sudden death to determine the outcome and that sudden death was going to start on the tenth hole. Jack needed to take a restroom break and Lee Trevino kind of made a mistake by poking the bear, if you will. Do you mind tell that story? I, I tell you what, that was really funny, Chris. So a uh, guy was driving by in a golf cart, and Jack yelled out to the guy. And uh, the guy said, yes, Mr. Nicholas. He says, hey, can you give me a lift over to the to the clubhouse? I got to use the restroom. And the guy said, why, sure, Mr. Nicholas. And before Jack, Jack even got in this cart, Lee says, hey, hold on a minute, Jack. And uh, we all thought Lee had to go, too. You know, it was the senior tour. And um, that wasn't what Lee wanted Jack's attention for. He said, uh, Jack, he says, the way I see it, you're going to get a ride over that clubhouse. You're going to take a leak and then you're going to get a ride over that 10th tee. You're going to show up there fresh. He says, uh, we got to walk. You got to walk. And uh, Jack, he got off that cart. He was mad. He was really mad. And so we were walking along now and uh, we're walking over the 10th tee and Jack was way out ahead of us. And Lee sidled up to me, Chris. And I'll never forget it. He says, Larry, he says, uh, you think I got Jack's chili hot? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think you did, Lee. Well, when we showed up on the 10th tee, uh, Jack did not look very pleased. And he ended up hitting a mammoth drive. He hit a just this three iron that I thought was going to burn up on re-entry onto the green, reached the green at two. None of us could, none of the other players, sorry. Could reach the green in two. Jack two putted for easy tap in birdie. Nobody else made bird, and uh, Jack ends up winning the skins game. The funny thing was, Chris, as we were walking back to the clubhouse, I'm walking with Chichi, and Cheech says, "Boy, I don't know why Lee does that, man, and I don't know why he pokes the bear." He says, "He ought to know if you're going to go bear hunting, you better make sure you got enough bullets." <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah. Larry, Gary Player is a wonderful friend of this show. Over the last 10 years, I've been blessed to spend time with him every year prior to Masters Week. Um, outside of the game of golf, though, what are some of the things about life that you learned from him over the years you got to spend with him? I just got chills. You know, Gary was like a father to me. And um, now, granted, Chris, I, I had Gary at the twilight of his career. And I, I know when Gary was younger and was fine to win major championships, he was hyper-focused on doing just that. Um, he was really an ambassador of the game. And he was just so kind to people. When he spoke to them, you knew that that he was listening to them. Uh, well, quick story. I, we were at Country Club of the South, and um, there was a guy outside the ropes, and he was trying to get my attention. He had a cell phone stuck to his ear. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my office, and you know, I'm trying to tend to business. And 
So lo and behold, I finally realized the only way I was going to get this guy to stop trying to get my attention was to go over and see what he wanted. So I walked over and said, what can I do for you? He said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I've, I've got my dad on the phone. He's 84 years old and he's dying of cancer. They've given him six months to live. Gary Players is absolute idol. He even used to wear black, all black to emulate his idol when he played golf. Can you get Gary to say hello to him? And I knew enough at that point, Chris, not to make any promises. So I said, let me see what I can do. And I walked back to the uh, to the bag and Gary was finishing up the warm up. And uh, we only had about 15 minutes to tea time. Time was of the essence. Gary saw me walk over there and he said to me, Larry, he said, what did that man want? So I said, you know, the door was open. I blasted through and said, hey, Gary, I know we're busy. But I said, uh, you know, he's got his, his dad on the phone. His dad's dying of cancer and he thinks you hung me hung the moon. He says, uh, I said, if, if we get a minute, can you just say hello to him? And Gary said, sure, sure. Bring the phone, bring the phone. And with that, we summoned the guy over and, and Chris Gary proceeded to have a 15 minute conversation with this guy. It got to the point. I was like a mother scolding her tardy child. I said, Gary, we got to get to the tea. And um, you would have thought they were war buddies, hadn't seen each other since WW2. So we get to the tea. We Tee off, just barely made the uh, first tee announcement. So I totally forgot about what Gary had just done for a dying man until a year later. I was there at Country Club of the South, and a guy walked up to me, and he said, um, you remember me? And I said, no. And he said, I met you last year. My dad was dying of cancer, and I asked you to get Gary to say uh, to say hello to him. And uh, I said, I remember you. And I did. I remembered him. And when he says, tell Gary he made a dying man's final days very special. He'd tell anybody that would listen. He got to talk to his idol. So he said, well, you tell him that. And I said, no, I, I think you should tell him. He's going to be out in a minute. And Gary came out and, and uh, he told, he, this gentleman told him, he said, Mr. Player, I just can't thank you enough for what you did for my father. And it was, it was those moments that are embedded in, in my, my memory, the, the wonderful things that he did for people, much like Chi-Chi. You know, Cheech was, I worked for Chi-Chi four years, and gosh, some of the things I saw Juan Rodriguez do for for people were were really special. You tell the story in the book, speaking of Gary Player, uh, how he never practiced with a new golf club. Talk about why that was. It was funny, you know, old habits die hard, Chris, and uh, he would never practice with a new golf glove on because it just didn't, he he just couldn't get himself to do it because his father uh, slaved in the in the in the deep in the gold mines of South Africa and could barely afford a golf glove for Gary when he was growing up. So when he got one, he wore it until it fell to bits. And um, so he just would never practice with a new golf glove. And the the funny thing was, we we would have you know just stacks of new gloves in in the golf bag, and and Gary's practicing with a used one. And, we would end up always giving away all those golf clubs to fans and, and friends and what have you. So it was uh, old habits die very hard. You say that when you were gathering pictures of the time you spent with Gary Player, that 80 percent of those pictures you found of the two of you together, you're both smiling or laughing. That's a heck of a wonderful thing and a sign of a really wonderful relationship. Yeah, we, you know, Chris, we, we really, we had a good time. I could always get Gary to laugh. He always, I never forget it. I, I was holding court with my, my audience of one on the fairway there at, uh, we were in Tampa 
And I, I, I don't know, I was cutting up about something and he was laughing. And um, he, he, re- he, he told me a story, he says his father, Harry, had a great laugh. Um, so much so that his nickname was Laughing Harry. Gary even nicknamed one of his, he named one of his racehorses Laughing Harry in honor of his father. And uh, Gary told me what a wonderful laugh uh, his father had. And after telling me that, he reached over and he pinched my cheek and he said, son, you really make me laugh. And I'll never forget that. We we really uh, we had a good time. Um, I, I just really cherished my time on his back. Ten years into your career, you got the caddy for him at the Masters, and just happened, that was your first trip to Augusta National. What's it like being on the bag for Gary Player at Augusta National? Uh, Chris, it's 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 just I would have worked both the Masters. I worked for Gary. I would have worked him for free, but I refrained from telling Gary. I figured, hey, if he's going to pay me, I might as well let him. <laughs> we, were, we were traveling on Gary's job. We were flying from uh, Scottsdale, the tradition tournament, the week prior to the Masters. We were on Gary's air player, I called it. We were on his hawker. And, you know, Chris, he was 58 years old. And he was talking about winning the tournament. I'll never forget it. He said, Larry, he says, you know, I think if I putt well this week, I can win the Masters. And, you know, I, I wrote in my book that I thought the, at the time, I thought the old man's cheese was slipping right off his cracker. But, you know, I guess the only shot a 58-year-old has of winning a major is to believe that he can do it in the first place. But to answer your question, to, just to, to drive up Magnolia Lane with them was so cool, was so special. And, you know, Chris, I, I tell a story that after I went, to get my my bib, I I went to the uh, the caddy uh, area, got my my bib, which you have to wear as soon as you hit the grounds. There, they put the you know your player's name across the back, and I will never forget walking by a, a gentleman holding his son's hand. He, this kid couldn't have been maybe eight or nine years old, and as I as I as I walked by, I heard this young kid say, "Dad, look, there's Gary Player's caddy." And that right there was such a gift. It encaps it, it just encompassed all things the masters for me, my first experience there. It was very, very special. He had obviously played there probably hundreds of times by that time. What did he need from you as his caddy at that point? Since he probably knew the course way better than just about anybody, and certainly way better than the guy that he brought for the first time. What did what was he looking for from you as you guys were out there? Playing around the golf, he was looking for me to get the equipment around the course. <laughs> you know, I mean, what was you know, Chris? You just said it. What was I going to tell him? I mean, three-time champion, three-time runner-up. I mean, he, you know, he knew every square inch of that turf. He had special stories. Um, you know, I'll tell you this about Gary. Gary was a great putter. He was a great green reader, and believe me, that comes in really, really uh, handy. Uh, especially there at Augusta, you know, Jack Nicholas wasn't the wittiest guy around. Wonder, you know, Jack let his clubs do the talking. And the only really witty thing I, I really recall Jack ever saying was that uh, a reporter asked him, Jack, how do you prepare for the greens at Augusta? And he said, that's easy. I go out and put on the hood of my car. And that's the truth. You, know, <laughs> you talk about slick, man. That, you know, they're they're just unbelievably fast greens. And so again, to answer your question, I, I don't know what he was expecting. Um, he was, you know, we were just hoping. He talked about winning, but 
I knew making the cut was going to be a stretch. And lo and behold, that first year we we just whiffed the cut by a, a couple of shots. And then he made the, the cut. I actually told another story um, in, in Golf Road. You know, after he missed that cut, the first Masters, Chris, we split up. He was doing a, a corporate gig, and, and I made my way to West Palm for the next tournament. And we had an interesting conversation. Gary said to me, Larry, he says, do you know what I did after missing the cut at the Masters? And I said, no, what'd you do? Go get drunk? He said, no. I, I knew I was being sarcastic. I said, I give, man. What'd you do? And he said, I cried. And wow. That was, that was really... Um, that was very monumental. It really told me how just how much the game means to him. And, um, you know, it was it was really, really telling to me just how much this man loves the game. Larry Herman Mitchell was Lee Trevino's longtime caddy. You say they had a love-hate relationship. Now, Herman was a big guy. I'm not sure I'd want to get on his bad side, even if I was Lee Trevino. Talk about what it was like when you guys got paired with those two. I'll tell you what. A lot of the book is dedicated to, to the Lee and Herman show. And, you know, it, 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 it wasn't really a love-hate. It was just Lee Lee wrote Herman pretty hard. But Lee also loved Herman like a brother. And he took care of him, especially after Herman was no longer able to caddy. And Lee monetarily uh, really took care of Herman. And I, I love that, you know. Uh, it was funny. Herman and I used to verbally joust about who the better caddy was. And Herman would say, I, I'll caddy you any day of the week. And I said, Herman, you outweigh me. And that's about it. Right about that time, Lee walked up and he said, let me let me tell you two jackasses something. He says, it ain't neither one of you worth a darn. He says, uh, I've seen a lot of great jockeys in my time, but I ain't never seen that. I ain't never seen that uh, jockey carry the horse across the finish line. He says, you understand? <laughs> and that, you know, that, that, was, that was typical Lee Trevino, very witty. And that, you know, there's a lot of truth in that, Chris. The fact is, I don't care how great a caddy you are. If your man ain't up to the task of winning golf tournaments, it doesn't matter how good a caddy you are. And so Lee was right there. But, um, uh, you know, my, my classic story was, uh, and it was a, it was a terrible event when Rodney King got beaten up by the, the police in LA. That was a horrible story, but that had just happened. And, Gary was paired with Lee and Jack, and uh, Herman talked Lee into the wrong club on a par three, and Lee blew it over the green, and um, he threw the club at Herman. <laughs> I mean, he tomahawked it. How Herman caught it without plunking himself in the head, I don't know, but uh, he threw the club at him, and he got in his face, and he says, I'll, and I'll spare you, your, your listeners, all of the expletives, but it was chock full of them. He said, you dumb SOB he says, do you know, do you see what those cops did to Rodney King in L.A.? And Herman said, yeah, what about it? And he said, that ain't nothing compared to what I'm going to do to you if you don't get the right club in my hand. <laughs> I told Gary about it after the fact. And Gary, uh, he laughed. He thought, wow, that's amazing. They were they were something together. They were uh, quite a quite a pair. Bruce Campton is another guy that you caddied for, and you say in the book that other players thought if you could handle working for Bruce Crampton, you could definitely work for me. What was yeah, it about Bruce, Crampton that was so challenging? Bruce was just, he, he you know, he was, boy, talk about hyper-focused on the golf course. He was all business. You know, Bruce always said that when he flew on an airplane, I surely hope that the flight crew is as serious about what they're doing as I am about what I'm doing out here. And, um, 
he, you know, he, uh, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way out there. Um, uh, but a big part of my job caddying for Bruce was to play traffic cop out there. You know, I sarcastically say that, you know, I had to remove squirrels, ducks, birds. I had to call NASA one time to stop a satellite from hovering over the golf course. I mean, <laughs> it was some of the stuff I had to do, but I'll tell you this about Bruce Brampton. Bruce was a great player and he was a good man. And, you know, Bruce turned me into one hell of a caddy. I knew after caddying for Bruce, I had the confidence I could work for anybody. And by the way, it's worth noting, you know, I caddied on the European Tour in 84, 85. You know, the great Seve Ballesteros, Seve was no trip to Hollywood. You know, Seve was tough, man. He was really hard on the golf on the golf course. So Bruce was, uh, he was demanding, but he was fair. Um, I, had, I, I ended up winning 13 times with him out there. Um, I tell a lot of the stories in the book about the, the shenanigans uh, that went on between he and Chi-Chi. Uh, they were both the, the the top guns on the senile tour at the time, and um, and some of the stuff that went on be, between them was just classic. I mean, it was stuff I couldn't make up. I'll never forget uh, the the tour came out with the electronic scoreboards for the first time, and so they couldn't accommodate Chi-Chi's whole name, so they just started putting um, they, they couldn't accommodate Rodriguez, so they just started putting Chi-Chi on the on these electronic scoreboards. Well, Bruce went to the tour officials and, and claimed that that was unfair, that it gave Chi-Chi an unfair advantage, which uh, I I don't see how, but it, that's not the crux of the story. So and to appease uh, Bruce, they started just putting as much of Chi-Chi's name on these electronic scoreboards. When Chi-Chi saw Rodrigo on the scoreboard, I could still hear him. He said, what the hell do they think I am, spaghetti sauce? <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. And uh, so it was really funny that that they butted heads the way they did. And yet I ended up going from Bruce to go to Caddy for Chi-Chi. I was surprised Chi-Chi ever hired me, frankly. Why is that? Just because of that? Because of that. Just because there was just such uh, such bad blood, you know. And, uh, and, and I could see how that would, you know. Chi-Chi's a pretty superstitious guy, too. We'll talk about him, I'm sure, coming up here. And very superstitious. So uh was just surprised he hired me. Glad he did. You know, w- one of my favorite scenes from WKRP in Cincinnati was when Les Nesman famously calls him Chai Chai Rajaguiz. There we go. Did, that, did, did that get back to Chi-Chi? Oh, they, they always used to come up and Chai Chai Rajaguiz, you know, and, and he would laugh. You want to hear something funny, Chris? Check this out when we get off this podcast. Google Devo uh, first album cover. And you know what you're going to see? What's that? The first album cover of Devo. You know who's on the cover? It's a pastel drawing of none other than Chichi Rodriguez. Is that right? It's right. And it's funny because they needed money and they asked, uh, they were looking for for uh, operating capital. And Chichi's manager knew of these guys. And Chichi went to one of their concerts and he said, Pards, I couldn't understand what the hell they were saying. The music was <laughs> <laughs> but I gave $250,000 anyway, just to, you know, just to get him going. And he wow. said, uh, yeah, he did. He gave him a quarter of a million, million dollars. And he, uh, he said, what the hell did I know? Those guys make, uh, they make a million dollars a night now. So, uh, you know, that's a little, a little slice of Americana. You check that out. You'll laugh when you see the, the drawing of them. Absolutely. You caddied at the open. 
So you were around the RNA in St. Andrews, and you actually got called an urchin for the first time in your life by somebody there. What led to that? Well, Chris, we were so we're I'm packing on the European tour, and you know the money. I tell people the money was beyond lean; it was anorexic. I mean, there was no money in in golf, much less European tour golf. And the only way that we could make ends meet, we discovered traversing this European PGA Tour was to sleep in tents on on the driving ranges or car parks, wherever we could. Now, what we didn't realize was that uh, showering, daily showering was going to be interesting. And some of the places they'd let us in to use the showers, uh, but some of the places, not a chance. And one of those was at the opening 85 at Royal St. George's. So we tried to, uh, my, my partner in crime, Wiz and I, who I, I, Wiz is in there quite a bit, and he's just a character. He's still out there walking green miles on the Champions Tour. But we tried to, uh, to just whisk past the RNA guard at the front of the clubhouse. And, um, he, he said, you know, can I help you? And we said, uh, no, we're just going to take a shower. And he said, well, who the bloody hell are you? And we said, we're caddies. Now, we learned the hard way. We use the C word, which is not how you're going to get into. It's the we broke a, a caddy protocol. We use the C word. So we we stuck around the back of the clubhouse. We found an open window and we uh, we uh, showered. And as we were exiting, uh, we made sure this this guard saw us manning this gentleman manning the front door, and uh, he saw us and he said. Stop, stop, you bloody urchins. And he actually <laughs> called us the urchins when we tried to penetrate uh, at the front door the first time. So I got called an urchin twice in an hour. And uh, <laughs> that was interesting. I told Gary that story and he just, he howled. He thought that was the funniest thing. And then in a strange twist of fate, I'm, I'm on Gary's jet again, flying with him to Royal St. George's for the 93 Open, I believe it was. That was 85. This. Yeah, it was the 93 Open at Royal St. George's. And uh, I told Gary, man, I hope that I hope that guard's there at the gate, at the front door, sorry. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind and tell him I don't sleep in a tent anymore. I flew on Gary Player's private jet. How do you like me now? But he was nowhere <laughs> to be seen. <laughs> Larry, I want to get kind of both sides of the coin on this from you. If you could go back and relive a moment from your time on tour, which one would it be? And if you could get a do-over for something that happened, what would that be? Uh, that's, that's, quite frankly, that's an easy one. You know, I was really fortunate, Chris. I, I ended up packing for uh, a, a base layoff, say. I, you know, I, I was on 24, 25 winners out there, but I never won a major out there. I came really close with Crampton, uh, but I came really close with Chi-Chi. And we uh, we ended up losing in 91. We lost the U.S. Senior Open in an 18-hole playoff to Jack Nicholas. And Cheech went out on Monday. He, he played fantastic. Uh, ended up shooting 69 on a really hard USGA golf course. We got smoked, Chris. I mean, Jack, Jack put a 65 on us. Now, your listeners may think, well, it was only four shots. <laughs> it might as well have been 40. Um, so to answer your question, I would say, man, I just wish we could have shaved one stroke off in right, you know, the regulation rounds just somewhere. Uh, and, and Cheech would have won that open that, that would have, I would really say, boy, my, my career is complete. Ended up winning for 
packing for 24, 25 winners, won the U.S. Senior Open at, at Oakland Hills, you know, topping Nicholas. So I, I would say that would be it. Larry, the book has got so many great stories, and it's just, it's a page turner. It's one of those books that you don't want to put down because, you know, one great story leads to the next great story. How long did it take you to get the book together? And uh, was it, was it a, a joyful experience or was it tough going back and reliving all that stuff? You know, it's such an easy question to ask. And I've been asked before. And the, the answer is, Chris, it was really easy. This story has just been, it, it's just been percolating. It was about a, I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you, it was probably a almost dozen year uh, endeavor. Uh, I did a really good job of memorializing, documenting my stories. I have one of those memories. I can just remember stuff. So it, it but it was a really cool process. I enjoyed it. I will tell you this, Chris, what you read, I wrote. I had it professionally edited, but I wrote it. And I didn't, I don't consider myself a writer as much as I do a raconteur. Are you familiar with that French word? Uh huh. It's a, a storyteller. And that, Chris, that's what I did. I, I just basically told my stories into a keyboard and that's what you read. I didn't get too fancy with it. Um, I wrote a warts and all. Um, that the, you know, I, I made it quite clear on the opening in the, uh, the beginning of the Crampton chapter that it was a very difficult chapter to write, but I, I, I felt like I had, I owed it to my readers to tell it warts and all. Truth be told, uh, there was a lot of difficult stories to write about Chi Chi, uh, about some of the, you know, the rough patches that we had. But, but overall, I mean, 90% of the stuff I read about Chi Chi Rodriguez is about the wonderful things that he did. Um, the great shot making, the showmanship. The other 10% is just the, the sheer, frankly, eccentricity and some of the stuff he came up with. You know, when he, he was convinced that Spalding was sabotaging his golf ball so he wouldn't beat Lee Trevino because he didn't have a Spalding contract. And he made me go to get a dozen balls from Lee Trevino and that whole story's in there. <laughs> that was, that was, that, that was an interesting, uh, thing to have to do, you know. But I enjoyed writing it. Um, it's out there. It was something I always said that I was going to do, and I and I did it. Um, I think the main the main uh, message in in my book is that I never made the obscene money these guys are making now. And by the way, I don't I, I don't belittle them for that. You know, ask me if I wish I had a good bag out on any tour right now. I say absolutely. What do you think? I'm nuts. Uh, sure, but. We may not have made the money these guys are making now, but man, we had fun. It was, there was nothing like being, uh, out there and, you know, walking onto the driving range with Chi Chi's bag on my back. And there's Jack is John with, with, uh, with Arnold and Lee is there and Doug Sanders is, is doing his thing and Gene Littler and Don January, Miller Barber. I mean, there were some real characters out there. I have heard that, you know, I know this, Chris, that we, I still have a couple of friends that are packing out on, on the, the PGA tour and, um, it's big money, man. It's big money and it's not a team sport. And I don't know that, that, that there's quite the camaraderie that there was when, when I was out on, on the champions, uh, on the, sorry, the senior tour. Um, you know, I urge your, your, re, your listeners to consider this also. Think about this. Jimmy Johnson was Justin Thomas's caddy in 18 when 
Justin Thomas was the number one player on the planet. He made more money caddying for Justin Thomas that one year than Arnold Palmer made playing the PGA Tour. Right. And that's, you know, wow. That's it's pretty crazy. It's obscene in a word. It is. Uh, I've had people, I ask, people ask me all the time, Chris, you know, do you think the whole live uh, PGA Tour merger is a good thing? Doesn't take me long to answer that one. Not, not a chance. I, I do not believe it is. I think that money contaminates everything. I don't. I just don't know what the end game is there, but I, I think the PGA Tour, I think they really tarnished their brand really, really badly. I think that people, unfortunately, are getting a little tired of watching people play games for more money than they're ever going to see in 12 lifetimes. Interesting perspective on that, Larry. I mean, um, obviously, the, the live separation of the tour and guys you know, defecting over to the live tour is been a great upheaval in our game over the last 18 months or so you know i've struggled with the whole thing over that that period of time uh initially i was disappointed that that had happened and then you know we, we come almost full circle with the pga tour taking the money you know that they told the players not to take and uh, and then that's been a huge disappointment for me as well um what's your take on on where we go from here I don't know. That's a that's a good one. That's a real good one. I don't know. I I, I think that um, you know I I've heard. I know that golf was on the decline, which saddens me to say. And then somebody had told me, you know, COVID for some odd reason, uh, kind of there there's been a resurgence of interest in the game of golf. I don't know that this is going to help. I don't know how long the whole merger is going to last. Um, let me ask you this, Chris: Have you watched one of the live events? I have. Actually, what's, it like? what's it what's it like? Um, I think it's an interesting thing to watch. I mean, a lot has been made about you know the music in the background. It's all, I mean, you, you don't get a lot of that. You don't hear it uh, on the uh, on the broadcast. Now, I don't know if that's because they blocked that out or whatnot. But yeah, I I don't think I don't think any less of the live events than I do a PGA Tour event. Okay, I mean you know. I've I've been a proponent. People on this show will know that I've been crying for why can't the PGA Tour players wear shorts? We all wear shorts when we play. Why do we care if those guys are wearing shorts or long pants? I think that's that's something that's this long overdue. Like, look, if we're letting these guys go out there in uh, in hoodies and uh, and and you know pants that are way too short, you know, kind of thing, you know, why not? Why aren't we letting them wear shorts? Uh, yeah, no, so, yeah. And, and Chris, it, it needs to be duly noted that uh, my perspective, I'm not afraid of change. Not at all. And here's a couple of ideas. Uh, stymies, you know, back in the back in the day. Right. Play, how about playing stymies? That'd be a little interesting. Yeah. Uh, how about playing instead of a 14 club uh, limit? How about playing an event where, you you know, seven? Um, that's that's a little bit of a stretch. I'd like to see a little more match play. There's a lot of people that say that's the way the game was meant to be played. How yeah. about this idea? You know, I'm sure, Chris, you, you've played in a lot of scrambles, and they get pretty tiresome playing in scrambles in these events that we, you know, we're invited to play in, especially I sell real estate here in the Valley, and every tournament I get invited to, it's a scramble. But can you imagine four tour players teaming up and playing a four-man scramble? I mean, you you those you could potentially have somebody shooting in the 40s. Right. <laughs> That that would be cool. I would really <laughs> love to see four solid tour players 
playing a, a, a square format scramble event. I think it'd be pretty cool. So I'm not afraid of change. I think that there's there's some some uh, cool things that you could do. Larry, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they get a copy of your book, follow you online and on social media. And you mentioned just a moment ago that you're doing real estate now. Talk about that too. Well, you can find my book at uh, it's on Amazon. It's Golf Road: My Time with the Masters of the Game. And you can find me professionally. I'm on LinkedIn, Lawrence Molestic. And then you can also find me at lawrencemolestic.com, my real estate website. And I sell, I'm a real estate broker associate with Berkshire Hathaway here in, in, uh, in the California desert in La Quinta, California. So we're really fortunate. We, uh, we get to sell a lot of really nice stuff here. Larry, I can't thank you enough for taking time out every night to come and be a part of the show. Your book is fantastic. Like I say, it's a true page turner. If you love the game, you're going to enjoy the stories that you share over the course of uh, your wonderful career. Uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing some of those stories with us tonight, and I hope we get the privilege of doing it again sometime. You're so welcome, Chris, and I thank you for, for promoting Golf Road, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I would love to come back on. You just say the word. I appreciate it. Larry, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, Chris. Take care. Thanks, Larry. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That is Larry Molestic. LawrenceMolestic.com is his website. The spelling of his last name is M-A-L-E-S-T-I-C. So you can find it there. Again, he talked about just briefly about the things that he's doing in real estate. Reach out to him, lmolestic at yahoo.com is his email address if you're interested out in the Indian Wells, California area, and you're looking for a great real estate agent that can also tell you a lot of great golf stories. Larry's your guy. Again, the the book is called Golf Road, My Time with the Masters of the Game, available on Amazon.com. The forward to that book is written by Gary Player. And I'm telling you, it's going to grab you right from the first, from the first page. Um, I, as you guys know, we, you know, back in, back in the day, right? This used to be the beginning of what we used to call silly season. And the skins game and the three store, uh, three tour challenge and the, sh- the shark shootout. Uh, so you had the regular skins game, then you had the senior skins game. And I, you guys know what a great, uh, fan I am of Jack Nicholas. So I was a huge fan of the skins game when, when Jack and Arnold and, and Lee and Gary were, were playing that. And then when they shifted over to the senior skins game, that got the majority of my attention. And Larry being right in the middle of all of that is just fantastic. I can't even imagine all the great things and the chatter and, and and the moments that he got to see being right in the heart of that sort of thing. So maybe next time we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but Larry's a great guy, had a, had a wonderful career. And like I say, we'll, we'll get him back on the show again soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA merchandise show. And another one that stood out to me is on point golf game changing three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Mark Kalkovecchia, Bobby Clampett, Virgil Herring, and Larry Molestic for joining me this week. Next week, if you need help with your golf game, this show is the place to be because scheduled to join me are four of the very best teachers in our game. Our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, will be back. 
One of the all-time great coaches and broadcasters, Frank Darby, will be making his next on the tee debut. We'll get a long overdue return visit from another great instructor. Andy Trainer will be here, as will our great friend and the host of the Golf Kingdom TV show, Rob Strano. To get to have Tom Patry and Rob Strano bookend a show, and in between that you get Frank Darby and Andy Trainer. that's a heck of an instructor lineup. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and be a part of it with us. I want to remind everyone that you can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com, which is a part of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review's online newspaper. Just go to TribLive.com, click on Sports and then Podcasts, and you'll find Next on the T front and center for you there. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audio Boom, and Player.fm. And again, my sincere thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts. Just download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. But most of all, my sincere thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit him straight, my friends.